0: I would spend sometimes an entire day binging, then purging, then recovering and going to binge again. People knew I was bulimic. I would say I was bulimic, but I would never tell anybody right before I was about to binge. There's a lot of secrecy involved with bulimia, as there is with anorexia and overeating.
1: Three disorders that, on paper, are very different. Polar opposites. They manifest themselves in a way with differences as extreme as the 300-pound weight difference that can separate them. But what if, upon closer inspection, we find out that they are more alike than they are different? Maybe that juxtaposition is merely a mirage. Mirage. Could that be? Well, that is what we are going to attempt to find out on the show today. We will be joined by two very well-known women who have battled food disorders. They are here to share their experiences with us. Olympian Dotsie Bausch and actress Alexandra Paul. Now, Dotsie graduated to anorexia following about with bulimia and eventually totally shunned food. While Alexandra, she fought bulimia for years, going to extraordinary lengths to hide her condition, where she would gorge and then quickly purge so that her body would not absorb the calories. And for me, my disorder was binging, but not purging. Binging and taking overeating to new heights and quite literally eating myself to an early grave. All very different, right? As recently as a month ago, I would not have hesitated to say, yeah, that is all very different things. But after appearing on their podcast, the Switch for Good podcast, and hearing about their experiences, I realized that there are a surprising number of similarities there. And so on today's show, we're going to have a frank discussion about them, what it was like, how we viewed food, the anxiety that came when we would eat, and the equal amounts of anxiety that came when we didn't. We'll also talk about all of those great lengths that we went to to hide our disorders and the love-hate relationship that we had with food. But more so, we're also going to talk about what it was like to overcome these disorders and break free of the chains that were binding us to an unhealthy and unhappy life. The chains that were pulling us toward that early grave. And I'll tell you one more thing that we have in common. Believe it or not, we all considered ourselves to be food addicts. Also on the show today, Dr. Neil Barnard is here to talk more about food and mood, about how what you eat impacts far more than just your physical health, because meals are mental. He will be looking at why we're drawn to these so-called comfort foods, and why in the long run, they are not so comforting. And with regard to addiction, why some of us are genetically predisposed to becoming hooked on these high-fat, high-calorie foods that we turn to. And then we'll also be talking about the healthier options that we should be putting on our plate instead. Talking about all of that as we take a deep dive into the diet psyche. But first, my conversation with Dotsie Bausch and Alexandra Paul. going to do something that we haven't done before here on the Exam Room podcast, and that is really do a deep dive into food psyche. Recently, I was on the Switch for Good podcast with my friends Dotsie Bausch and Alexandra Paul. They do this wonderful podcast and in the intro we heard alexandra talk a little bit about her struggles and dotzy previously has been on this show to talk about what it was that she went through and i've been able to share my story here on a number of occasions but never in one episode in one segment have we actually brought all of this together and approached food psyche from so many different angles. So that's what it is that we are going to do here on the program today. And with that, we will welcome Alexandra Paul and Dotsie Bausch to the exam room. Thank you both so very much for taking the time. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Alexandra, I, let's, let's start with you because you are making your debut here on the program and it's, it's only fair. I had no idea that you struggled with bulimia and in the intro to the show that I was on with you, the switch for good podcast, you and Dotsie were talking about some of the things that you went through with bulimia. And I'm just curious. I think that there are so many people who are listening to this right now who may not be familiar. They, they know the word, they know that it's an eating disorder, but what is it really like living with bulimia? What are the emotions and the compulsions that come with that?
0: Bulimia is throwing up, literally, usually after a binge. And it it comes from the same pain that overeating and anorexia comes from. It's just a different way to exhibit it. Um, And it's often a more socially acceptable way because you can hide it. You don't get too thin or too fat. Bulimics tend to uh, maintain a more steady weight. Although I have to say that just like any addiction, you start off using the drug or the or the habit or the, whatever it is for a certain result. And after a while, it doesn't work anymore, but you still keep doing it because it's habit and you're emotionally tied to it. So my weight, when I stopped being bulimic, actually went down a little bit and stabilized maybe seven pounds, five pounds lighter. But, um, I was bulimic from 16 to 28. So for 12 years, I, that meant that I would spend sometimes an entire day binging, then purging, then recovering and going to binge again, or I might, um, uh, spend several days, di- a week or two, I started logging it at the end and it was on average uh, once a week. Um, but sometimes that once a week was four times in a day. And then I would have a very good three and a half weeks. So it really depended. And I was in therapy the entire time. And I also was somewhat honest about my issue. People knew I was bulimic. I would say I was bulimic, but I would never tell anybody right before I was about to binge. I see Dotsy nodding. I would never be that vulnerable to actually be honest before I was about to binge and throw up. Um, so in that way, there's a lot of secrecy involved with bulimia as there is with anorexia and overeating too.
1: Yeah. And Dotsie, you struggled with anorexia. I, to the best of my knowledge, there is not that binge component that comes with it. How did you view food differently than what Alexandra was just describing?
2: Well, I can, I can really relate to the secrecy of it for sure. I mean, that was a, it was like, it was a whole game almost became almost a game of, um, you know, hiding uh, all all sorts of ways that you, you know, because we, eat all the time with our friends and family I mean it's very communicative uh, community-based activity so I was always having to figure out how to lie my way around I've already eaten or I'm gonna eat later or I just ate or I uh, and so it was it was very secretive Um, my uh, you know I still say to this day that my anorexia didn't have really anything to do with food and to sort of you know mirror what Alexandra was saying earlier. It's just whatever. It was just kind of the, the poison that I chose to act out on my inner pain. I could have chosen, you know, a gambling addiction or sex addiction or cocaine addiction or alcohol addiction, or it just, for whatever reason seemed to be the way that I acted out on my pain. And it really got um, it really got going uh, when I was at a time in my life where I felt really, really, uh, frightened. And uh, so it happened during that period of time in my time in my life where I felt completely um, just out of control, basically, of, of my destiny at, at that period of time. And so I started uh, the, the, the restricting the food out of a deep need to be in control of something. And so it started really kind of slowly. And then it, it picked up speed, steam pretty fast. But in the beginning, the first months was just little bits by little bits, right. Because it, 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 I liked the challenge too, cause it's hard to control your food. Right. As we all know, it's really, it's it's really difficult to, to um, eat less and less and less and less or, or more and more and more, you know, whatever it might be or throw it up. So yeah.
0: Yeah, I want, I I'd like to echo what Dotsie said and, and uh, hear what you think Um Chuck, is that it's really not about the food. As much as I insisted to my therapist that I was terrified of gaining weight, it's true. I was terrified of gaining weight. And I really felt like if I didn't throw up that I would eat everything in sight, people who just had normal eating habits, I couldn't believe it. I thought they were all lying because I had this deep need to binge. And if I didn't, I think it's like maybe going into withdrawal from drugs. If I didn't, I don't even know because I succumb to it most of the time. Um, And it it really wasn't ended up being about the food. It was more about what Dotsie said, control and feel having something to focus on instead of the real pain.
1: I I agree with that. And I will, I will say that, you, you think bulimia, you think anorexia, and then you think morbid obesity and superfood addiction, right, which is where I was. And you would think that those three things could not be any more different, but there are so many commonalities that I just heard that we, we share here, and that is one, the lies and trying to hide it. Um, and I remember going through uh, to, to great lengths as well to, to hide this. And on those occasions when I was called on my eating habits, you know, whether it was going through the drive through the one time and having the person taking the order, say, you eat too much. But I already had this story worked out in my mind that I could just rattle off that, no, this isn't for me. This is for everybody at the office, you know? So boom, there's the lies. Try to hide it there. Or you would just eat. uh, For me, it would be like a salad if you went out to eat with everybody. So yeah, just eat like you. And then going home and binging, uh, you know, when I was behind closed doors. And then Alexandria, you're also talking about almost this withdrawal that you go through when you don't do that. It was a massive compulsion, to shove as much food in my face as I possibly could every single day. And if I did not do that, I would feel sick. Physically, uh, I would be just a complete jerk to be around. I would feel sick mentally. um, And and I would just get really angry. What were the withdrawal symptoms like for you when you did not get a chance to purge?
0: If I had binged and I couldn't purge, I emotionally it was incredibly stressful. I hated, I felt like I was trapped inside a body that I didn't, uh, it's very uncomfortable to binge. So really what it is, Dotsy? tell me if you think this is right. Cause I know you had, you had your, uh, bouts of binging and purging too. Right. Uh, but predominantly your, um, eating disorder was anorexia. Whereas I started as an anorexic and went to bulimia because I didn't, didn't have the fortitude, that Dotsie. It's very hard to restrict your eating like that. And then I, I wanted to eat, but I couldn't control it. So um, uh, binging and purging became a way for me to control control things in a different way than the anorexia had. But um, it, now I forgot what I was... Dog. <laughs> it,
1: it was kind of the withdrawal <laughs> symptom uh, we were talking about. Oh,
0: yes. I felt... Like I just couldn't stand my body and that I was trapped inside it. And it was incredibly uncomfortable after binging. What, yeah, what I was gonna say was that binging is a way was, it was mostly about the purging for me. So binging was just a way I could purge. It was also literally, my therapist would express, stop um, suffocating the feelings with food. And then you, you purge it up and there's this sense of relief and you're so exhausted also after doing this ritual. And then you don't think about your real problems because you've been so focused on food.
2: I was going to ask you a question when you said when there was a time that I had binged it, but couldn't purge, you know, it was really terrifying. I'm thinking that there was a time, like I know when I set up my binges, like there was, I was not in any kind of situations where I was not going to be able to purge. Like that would have just sent me straight off the the roof uh-huh yeah well that was Did you have I,
0: I there were probably times where I where you know you had to wait a certain amount of time and then after that your body's digested it and yeah no I I'm sure I I not have as much control as you Dotsie
2: no I just would just isolate myself so that both could happen in direct succinct and I didn't have to wait I mean because it I, I I don't know if I'd be here if I had ever had to wait I mean that just oh my god that just sounds yeah going back to that place, that space that we were in. I just, I can't imagine not being able to, to purge exactly at the time that I wanted to.
0: I also want to say that overeating, there's a, we can overeat at Thanksgiving and you can binge and there's a difference in your mentality. And Chuck, I'm sure, you know, because you probably have eaten a little too much, you know, in the last 11 years or so, but it's different from the craziness that happened when you would go on a binge?
1: Oh, much, much different. And I remember, I mean, I would plan my day out around my gorge fest. That's what I called them. You know, I, and, and I actually lived for this, you know, it was like my calling and I knew it was like, all right, if I can just get through to 10 o'clock tonight, I can go to the drive through and man, life is going to be good, which is, I mean, it's really sad looking back at that and how much I was looking forward to it at the time. And it took a number of years before I even recognized that this was a real problem. That's the funny thing about it. But did you guys like really kind of map out in your mind what it was you were going to binge on? Did you kind of put a put a, a a little mark on your calendar and say all right man i'm doubling down on pizza tonight and it's going to be fantastic and then an hour later up it comes how did you guys deal with these binges did you did you plan them out or were they kind of sporadic for you
0: oh um no that i didn't plan them out cuz i always wanted to not binge so my day would start with with good intentions like most days do when you get out of bed, if unless you're severely depressed and I wasn't severely depressed, my life was working on every other level. And that's one thing about bulimia is that it's sort of like, um, being a dry drunk is that you are, you're able to function really well. Um, and so I had wonderful relationships and my work, my acting work was going well. Um, my activism was, was passionate and I was excited about it, but I did have this secret. So I would start off the day and then something would happen. And usually it was something like doing something that I really didn't want to do that I was doing. And I'm not talking about working hard. I'm talking about that. I wasn't authentic that I had said, yes, I'll be your friend kind of thing. Or, um, Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful idea when really I didn't but want to get involved or be so that's what that would usually be the reason that I would feel like okay now I've got to go binge so it wasn't as well planned out because I did have a busy life and but I did live alone I made sure that I never got so close to my boyfriends that <laughs> I didn't have that time to I never lived with um I did live with one man for a year and a half but I don't and I can't remember how I got around here he knew about the binging So, and the purging. Um, So anyway, yeah.
1: Mine were definitely,
2: definitely not planned out. I mean, mine was like, I remember almost like it was yesterday, fairly vividly uh, having this shift in uh, that my mind could no longer control my body and my body um, needed food. Cause I was sustaining myself on a couple hundred calories a day for like a long time. And, um, it was kind of just, it was almost overnight. It, it just, my body, it, I, I couldn't not binge. It, so it was like, it was like this new thing for me. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know why, why it was this way. And then, but my mind could not grapple or grasp and then grapple with what I'd just done. So it was just like, the first time it happened, I was just like, oh, we got to get rid of this. So I did a lot of laxatives as purging and then kind of went into the throw up thing. Cause I was like, Oh, this is faster, easier. Like you said, don't let it digest, get it up before that. So, blah. but it was, uh, it was just, it was super sporadic, never planned out. Just like, just whenever, I guess I was feeling really uh, anxious, it, you know or whatever was bringing it on that feeling of panic it would it would it would turn into a binge and it was um, you know for a while there it was every day for a long while uh, is it says, i think my body and that would be that moment i guess in a, in a you know i had been in inpatient and outpatient treatment with anorexia but i think it was that you know that's the difference between then going down the road of losing your life from anorexia, where what basically happens is your body starts eating its own organs. And so most of the deaths from anorexia are heart attacks. Uh, And it was like, it was like my body just took over, like, you're not going to die from this. We're going (laughs) to, it was, it was really strange um, looking back on it. Yeah. That it, that it, that it unfolded that way.
1: Was there a a big swing of emotion that you experienced after you would binge? Like, were you like, all right, man, I'm on the clock. And you just got this rush of anxiety to get this up, get this out. Or did you just kind of know that that was what was going to happen and you went with it over time?
2: Well, as all of us know, uh, if it's a a real good binge, which all of them are, uh, you're so sick. So it was just an automatic, almost the, the purging, you know, it was like, get this. I mean, I just felt oh, terrible from head to toe. So it was, um, it was almost that, that almost felt like a little, like on autopilot. Like I didn't pre-think, okay, now I'm going to throw this up after this because it just like, I couldn't, I couldn't handle keeping it in mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. mentally or physically.
0: I would feel so tired physically that would be the, and so much relief from getting rid of it that the, that would be the reward in itself. And of course, as I mentioned before, the fact that now I've distracted myself for a certain amount of time from my real pain and, and that hole that I would feel because I felt a pain in my solar plexus that that's, that was the signal for a binge. It came there. I don't know if other people had different places in their body that was a signal but I would feel this pain here and I would feel like food would would cover it up and, and uh, squash it. And then, um, of course, the food would feel so uncomfortable that then I would throw it up. And so it was a mixture of physical and emotional relief and just exhaustion. Mm. Um, uh, and this thing that that was so big would would drown out every other thing in my life at that moment because it was so all encompassing. Did you ever throw up, Chuck?
1: No, uh, no. My goal was to get it in and to keep it in. I think that that's kind of what is separating the three of us is uh, I, I did not have that desire to, to purge. The, the interesting thing was, um, I actually lived with a family member who had anorexia, very severe. Uh, was in uh, uh, a number of um, studies that were done here at uh, the National Institute of Health, um, just a few miles from my house right now. Um, And I mean, watching her whittle away to 70 some odd pounds when she's a good 5'8", 5'9", that was really scary. But I remember living with her and thinking, like, I I don't understand how somebody would not want to eat, you know? And so just seeing what she went through, I, I think really... Fortified my desire to want to eat as much as possible and to keep that down because I, I don't know like if my mind was so warped at that time that I was thinking well I can't be as bad off as she is because I'm not anorexic and I am keeping this food in I, I don't I don't know but I never ever ever had that desire to to purge and I actually think that it, it was partly because of that she was living with uh, us when I was. Uh, early in my high school years. And those are pretty formative times. And um, certainly my intake of, of food was increasing at that point. So uh, maybe that maybe that did have something to do with it.
2: Was, was part was, was your high uh, keeping the food in? Like I I know for me, like the binge, I couldn't get high off that at all. Like it just felt terrible, but I got a great high off the purge. So when you kept the food in, like after your last taco, was it kind of like this euphoria of, it's probably chemical euphoria from, from all the sugar and fat maybe.
1: Oh, 100%. And uh, that high actually started with the first bite. Um, And I remember, Mm -hmm. you know, just, I, I would take it and I would just feel good. It was a rush um and you know and if i went a couple of days and i was trying to diet um and then i i would finally give in and man what a rush that was when it, you know i hadn't had that fix in a few days um recently on the show i interviewed uh, dr hana kaliova i know that she's been a guest on your program as well she uh presented some new science showing the way the brain reacts to these high fat high calorie foods and I always thought that the brain reacted uh, like it was overly stimulated by this with people who are super morbidly obese. But what she showed was that part of the problem is that the pleasure centers don't light up quite as much, and so you eat more and more and more, so that you do get that high. So you're 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 always chasing this, but you need to eat more and more to reach that that high. And she was saying that that is part of also what can make it so difficult for people who are 300, 400, 500 pounds and so on to deal with this is you're, you're just chasing a high and you can never quite get to where it is that you want to go, but you always wind up feeling a lot better if you did than versus when you tried to abstain from food.
0: Mm. It's interesting to that you say you got the high from the purge and you say you got the high from the eating. I remember feeling very sort of hyped up by just purchasing the food that was a lot of times it was for me, it was all the forbidden foods. Dotsy knows how much I like sugar. So it was things like ice cream and cake and stuff that I was restricted when I was a kid. So it, it was in a way saying, F you, I can do what I want. That was a lot. That I think is why I chose binging and purging. And also because of the socially acceptable, you could hide it over drugs and things like that is that um, it was me saying F you, I can eat whatever I want. Mm. <laughs> and so, uh,
1: yeah. So the taboo played a, played a big role in that then, huh?
0: Yeah. For most people, it's not taboo. It would be more drugs or alcohol or, you know, <laughs> sex. But for me, it was <laughs> Ben and Jerry's. I, <laughs> I was a very, uh, uh, and as we talked about on the show that we did together, the three of us, uh, switch for good podcast. Um, I um, I've never really done any drugs or even coffee or anything because I really felt was worried that I would let loose on those things. And I didn't need more than one addiction.
1: Do you, do you still worry uh, about addiction? Do you still consider yourself to be uh, addiction prone? Or do you think that knowing kind of what you do now about the psyche, you could have that cup of coffee and not turn into a coffee addict. Oh, you, um, I am talking I'm to the
0: addict. So that's questions not for me. <laughs> 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 I really see now because I'm honest about it and talking about, I see other people too with clear eyes and I see that I'm actually not as addictive as I thought. Um, but I do, but I, but I do watch myself for sure. And I, and I have chosen not to drink coffee because, well, it's highly addictive anyway. 90% of the world drinks it on a day, almost daily basis. So I just, I just would prefer just to stay away from all that. Um, uh, But if I were to drink a glass of wine, which I haven't, I think I've only drunk one glass of wine in my life. I, if I like the, yeah, I think there's a little bit of fear actually. I, I'm pretty confident I wouldn't like alcohol. It's an acquired taste for most people, anyway. So I figure I'm not even, and coffee's the same way. So I, I feel, yeah, I'm just not going to acquire the taste.
1: What about you, Dotsy? How do you deal with the addictive tendencies if they're still there?
2: They're not. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe they are and it's, and it comes out in, in my work or something. I mean, you know, who am I to say, oh, they're, they're no longer there. I mean, I'm, I'm still half crazy most of the time, but in a different way, in a way that I'm able to embrace and just, you know, just be okay with, I guess. Um, I don't think I, or I know I'm, I I'm d- don't have as much of an addictive behavior as I was afraid I did because, uh, uh, The way Alexander's treating it is smart, but I was not smart. And I was like, I'll try other things and see how they go. Um, So I do enjoy uh, coffee in the morning and I, I'm kind of, I, I love wine, I wine clubs. And like, I just, I enjoy, I know a lot about wine. Um, It's interesting to me. And it tastes wonderful with food. And I, throughout, most of my adult life, I, I do all these trials all the time and I just stop for like three days, five days, whatever, because I just want to make sure it's like I'm checking myself <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I feel the same. This, yeah. Okay. I'm good. All right. So I'm allowed to enjoy one. I don't know. I still do that. I feel like I could have, you know, really let myself know quite some time ago that this is. This is okay to in, enjoy this as you're not, um, addicted to it. But, um, maybe that is that old addictive nature, just checking in with my, you know, self now, uh, just to be sure. But I do know that I would not try, um, like coke or methamphetamines or something like I'm very positive that that you know that would take me down a spiral so like there's (laughs) they're not even legal I know that but there are like lines (laughs) where it's like that's not going to be you know there there's no way like I I think that would be a problem
1: yeah I I feel the same way when it comes to substances like that you know like uh, I, I remember when I was smoking marijuana like i i couldn't just do it every once in a while like i had mm-hmm. to do it 5 and 6 times a day and it did not take very long from my first hit to when i was you know getting high all day every day you know i was a functional pothead and you would never know it but if i didn't get that in me like i i just i was depressed i wasn't happy and i i do worry that that tendency is is still there. And maybe that's why I'm still hyper-focused on food and maybe why I've chosen this career, not just to help people, but it it helps me maintain a healthy focus and is kind of my way of keeping that uh, addictive personality kind of in check. And at least if I'm going to be addicted to anything now, it's going to be a healthier lifestyle. And I think maybe that's actually part of the reason why I'm here doing the exam room. Does that make sense to you?
0: Hmm. Well, look at Dotsie and I, we're both doing a show too about health and being healthy. And we are obviously focused in our activism on food. It happens to be, you know, vegan food, plant foods. But um, so, yeah, it makes sense completely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, my dentist, she had braces and my hygienist, my facialist, she had really bad acne. I think we're drawn to our vulnerabilities and we can actually help people more when we've when things have not gone great in earlier years, we have more empathy. I'd love to hear from both of you how what's different now that you're not in this hole of pain and desperation and acting out? What happened?
1: Dotsy, I'll let you take this one first. I'm gonna I'm gonna think about this and try to give you a good answer. <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, you know, you know, Alexandra, for me, it was loads and loads of, um, you know, therapy getting to the place where it wasn't such a strong part of my life. But I think now, I mean, I bet this will resonate for all three of us, I, um, is uh, certainly the, the freedom and uh, just the, the soulfulness of veganism. Um, I was on a podcast yesterday afternoon, and the host was a, a carnivore. Which I didn't know prior to the beginning. Uh, So the you know the lion diet is what that is, and he was really he he was I think for the first time able to carnivore. He was on the carnivore diet, or he just happened to eat meat. No, he's on the carnivore diet. Yeah, he 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 was yeah. Um, and has been for a while and has all these issues, which I'm like, mm, hello? <laughs> like, <laughs> like he's angry and anxious and, uh, has, yeah, like, uh, d- d- depression and all of these things <laughs> I was like, you might want to get some of the hormones out of the food you're eating. Um, but I think for the first time, he finally, I was able to finally, uh, make clear to him that veganism is not a diet. Because, you know, people, we know, we, we, they're in the, in the media, they go from veganism to the carnivore diet or, or the other way, you know, and it's, it's obviously, you know, the dieting industries that, you know, billions of dollars every year for, for good reason. There's probably, I bet you there's 2,000, 3,000 diets, you know, on the planet. And so, it, you know, I, I shared with him from my history, like, I'm not going to be on a diet. Like, that's not going to be a thing I'm doing. <laughs> like, it's not and really just um so i think that that's what it is for me is just this this whole light that happens uh really i think every time i eat i'm 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 still aware and it's been almost 10 years that that i am choosing um love for my fellow beings and it 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 that just gives me all the high i need you yeah know, every day
1: yeah yeah uh, and and it's similar for me it's uh, i'm not ashamed to eat anymore. Like I'm very proud of what it is that I'm eating because still, you know, here I am 11 years removed from being that 420 pound man. And I still so much identify with him in my mind on so many levels. So when I look down and I see something like, you know, whole grains, uh, roasted Brussels sprouts, carrot chips, which I was introduced to today, or baby carrots for, you know, for that matter, I look down at that and I'm like, This is so different than that half of a greasy chicken that I would eat from Boston Market or the two pizzas from Domino's or the $20 worth of Taco Bell. Like, I still just get the biggest kick out of how happy I am, how content I am eating that versus where I was. And because I'm eating that, I also have this sense of relief. You talked about this freeing feeling. I feel free that I'm never going to go back to that 420 pound frame, and that struck me so hard yesterday uh, when I was doing a photo shoot and I was standing in my old 66 inch pants. All of me was in one pant leg, and I, you know, could barely oh stretch God. out to get you know mm-hmm. the my my arm to to hold out the pants all the way. And I just remember like thinking these pants never when I was that size, never looked that big to me. And now I'm like, oh my God, I'm seeing things so clearly. And I just feel like my mind is there. And I'm just so grateful that I'm not that person anymore, but I'm even more grateful that I have this platform where I can talk about this and be so open about it so that somebody who is in, still in that frame you know, can hear this and be like, oh my God, if he can do it, I can do it too. Like, that's the whole thing is you don't have to be trapped where you are today. Your today does not have to be your tomorrow. And that's what the difference is, is knowing that there is that light at the end of the tunnel. So for me, that's what it is, knowing that there's light at the end of the tunnel.
0: But Chuck, you, you had bariatric surgery. That's a physical thing. How did you come out of it with a different emotional and mental person when all that happened was a surgery, that was the cutoff, right? That was the difference between overeating and not overeating. That was the point in your life.
1: That's it. Um, I, you know, and, and when I had that surgery, I didn't expect any of this to happen. I honest to God, didn't. Like I thought that that was my last ditch effort and I would wind up going to the grave and I wish that there was this single moment, kind of like an epiphany that I had where I'm never going back. The The seed for that got planted very early after the procedure, because I felt so just crappy having, you know, had open abdominal surgery and being literally rewired inside. Like that, that was painful. But I just remember seeing this cup of black coffee that my father and stepmother brought me from McDonald's. And I never took a sip of it because I just remember looking over and seeing the golden arches and for the first time in my life being repulsed by them and, and angry in a sense. And like, this represents everything that brought me to this point. I'm not going to go back to that. And I don't think that I realized at that point, matter of fact, I know for a fact at that point, I didn't realize how devout I would come, uh, become as far as a healthier lifestyle, but the seeds were planted that day and it just kind of grew on top of that little by little and only accelerated as I continued to learn more about health. And I'll tell you what the, what the final straw was when I knew I was never, ever, ever, ever going back was after I had lost 230 pounds, and and certainly you know today I've lost 280. But the doctor who performed the surgery, Alexandria, he said to me, "You've reached your goal weight. Now you need to eat a hamburger." And being so put off by that, like you are literally telling a crack addict who's got six months of sobriety, "Congratulations, here's your chip and a rock to go with that." And it made no sense to me, and I was just like. No, I can't do this anymore, and that was that was the day when I was like, I am never going back.
0: Wow, it's good he said yeah. that. Because I know Dotsy, you you've taught me a lot when you talk about how you healed in terms of the you you really. I mean, I'm impressed at how hard you worked with therapy because my therapy was basically just talking about my pain, and I don't. I think it made me more aware of why I was bulimic, but I don't know how much it helped me actually overcome bulimia. As you know, it was when I went to the 12 step program and actually did the 12 steps. That's when that hole in my solar plexus, that, that pain, that emptiness, something that feeling went away. Um, and you in therapy were actually had active homework, which I, I love yeah. to share with, with everyone because I think it's so helpful.
2: Well, it was just, I mean, what, what's, you know, what is it when we have an eating disorder um, in terms of what's happening physiologically and we are completely disconnected. Uh, we've completely disconnected our mind from our body. Like there are two separate entities living two separate, completely separate lives. And so my work was, well, it, to, to your point first, I had gone to a couple of therapists, as you know, before this one, that it was like, let's just dig into your childhood. And then it was, you know, what are we going to do that for a year? It's like, I'm sick right now. Like I'm ready to do the work right now. So, um, so the, the, the one that I found I think was it wasn't 12 steps, but it was 12 step esque in that it was a lot of work and you had a lot of homework and it was, this is like a journey that you're going on. It was a healing journey. And so she really helped me connect my mind and my body. And so, you know, from, from day one, it was, You have to sit with your pain before you act out on whether, whether it's going to be at this point, I'm completely full blown into bulimia by the time I started working with her. So it was before a binge, you have to do this. And it was about connecting my mind with what I was feeling in my body. And I hadn't checked in with my body for years. I didn't know where my pain was. I didn't know how it felt, you know, just like we've talked about, she had me put a shape on it and a size on it and a feel on it. What, like it was, it, was it rubbery? Was it hard? Was it soft? Was, it, I mean, it was like a whole thing I had to describe and never have been that connected with my body. Uh, so it was a, it was a whole new way, but I think that's, that was the beginning of, of, of putting those two together. And then, and then your soul kind of follows along with, the, with it as well and, and, and says, oh wow, this feels so much better than that. The high of of this feels so much better than the one before.
0: Yeah. For us to share that it didn't just sort of miraculously, we changed. We actually had to put in a sort of awareness and work and time. Well, actually for me, it went, it was a month, a month after 12 years of throwing up a month after being in this 12 step program, I stopped throwing up. Now, this is not an advertisement for 12 steps, but it's just saying that I think the difference between this 12 steps and the therapy that I had, which once again, I think also helped me very much to learn about myself, but not to change my behavior is that the 12 step program helped me actually make behavior change, which I think Chuck is what your surgery forced you to do for a little while is actually change your behavior and then other things follow. Do you think?
1: Yeah. You, you've you got me now thinking it's like, I, cause when I was on the switch for good podcast, we, we spoke about all the things that were contributing factors to why I turned to food. Um, And I, I did therapy a few times in my life. They were always short stints, but now you've got me realizing and swear to God, as I'm sitting here, I was like, I have not dealt with a lot of this, this crap. Like I will talk about it openly and honestly, but I I've never like some of the deep dark stuff that we talked about on the show. Like I never have really talked about that. And so I wonder if that then could take even my health journey to the next level. If I'm able to tackle some of those aspects, again, all of that goes back to the psyche and all of this stuff is so intertwined. Uh, you, you got me thinking today that is for on sure. Um, so uh, again, thank you for that.
2: <laughs> That's cool. My therapist is still in practice. So, you know, where to find me to <laughs> <laughs> <Right> <laughs> you work with her. She's okay. kind of amazing. Yeah.
1: Oh, I Good I did stuff. amazing. Um, real, real quick. I know that we, we need to wrap things up here. Uh, two, two more things that I, I want to hit on. Uh, one of which is, um, How did a plant-based diet, how has that really helped you in your healing process? Do you think that you would be as far along in your healing process, Dotsie, now, uh, had you not turned to a plant-based diet?
2: Yes, I do think I would be as far along, but I don't think I would enjoy food like I do now. Yeah. I had gotten to a place where I was, I mean, I was hundred percent healed for years before I found a plant-based diet. Um, but, uh, food was, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I thought food could never be pleasure again. And it was not pleasure when I was eating, you know, whatever I was eating that were all animals. I mean, you know, every once in a while I had a meal like, oh, that was delicious or good or whatever, but I wasn't connected to my food. I never cooked my husband and I went out to eat seven days a week not, no, I mean, never anything. And this has connected me, plant-based diet has connected me to food and flavors and liking to cook ever so slightly more, not a lot, but um, (laughs) we eat in five or six days a week. Um, So it has absolutely um, encouraged me to explore food and enjoy food and get excited about food and Like all of us, I pretty much lose my mind anytime I'm in a different city on Happy Cow, eating my way through the city with just so much excitement and joy. So I think it's done that, the plant-based diet.
1: What about you, Alexandra?
0: I love that Dotsie has definitely got a healthier attitude towards food than I. I still um, worry that I'm going to gain weight. And it's probably because I'm still drawn to unhealthy foods like sugar. If I, when I'm eating a fully whole food plant-based diet, I don't think about food, uh, and, and weight and anything. It's, it's a really positive experience. Um, so I think I'm, I'm 95% of the way there, but I still see room for me to get better. But to answer your question, yes, um, a plant-based diet, changed me a lot. And the reason is, is because changed my attitude towards food a lot. I I wasn't throwing up, I haven't thrown up for 29 years. And in that, in that, uh, the last 29 years, I've maybe wanted to binge less than 10 times. So it's because I've healed really, and I'm dealing with my pain when it comes up. Um, And I don't use food in that way anymore. But um, what a plant-based diet did was it aligned my values, my food with my values. And that just makes everything so much more beautiful. And like Dotsy said, it, it makes food, it makes you feel proud to eat. You said, mentioned that too, Chuck, is that we're making a decision of love every time we eat. So it's, it's less fraught with pain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's, it's pride. Uh it's it's excitement. You know, I, I like I said, I still can't believe that these are the foods that I enjoy now. Um, but it's also a great safety. Uh, net for me. You know like I know what I'm eating here is safe and it's not going to take me down that dark road anymore. Mm. Because I do know. I am terrified like I am just like that that person who has, you know, quit smoking for 10 years and thinks that they can have just one. I know that I cannot go to that drive-through at Taco Bell one time and be okay. No, I know that I will be there again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so with this, I don't have to worry about that. And so that is quite liberating and, and I just, I love it. It's pride, it's love, it's borderline euphoria. You know, it's just the greatest thing in the world. Um, all right. So we are just about out of time. Talk to me, uh, Dotsie, a little bit about uh, Switch for Good. How's the campaign going? Talk to me. What's what's new?
2: Um, well, we have a, we, it's a full-blown nonprofit. So we finished our summer campaign where we were on NBC uh, in front of 30 million people, which uh, had, uh, 1 million and just under 500,000, 500, people take an action, uh, on our w- website to take a journey, uh, to start the journey. So that was, uh, a, yeah, it was a rock and summer campaign. It was supposed to go, uh, it was supposed to lead into the Olympic games, but as we all know, everything changed. And, uh, so we went forward with it, but we've got some really, um, Interesting uh, legal things going on right now. We have a letter of investigation out to the um, athlete ombudsman at the USOC um, that has to, uh, you know, we've called to investigate that sponsorship between milk and uh, the United States Olympic Committee, um, because it goes directly against their uh, ethos of, uh, you know, fairness in, in, in sport, so uh, and we're going to be right alongside uh, PCRM in January with some uh, new bills coming up. Uh, we're starting our first research project as it relates um, animal-based foods versus plant-based foods, and it's specifically soy milk against cow's milk um, uh, as it relates to uh, hormones. And uh, that's going to start in the spring at Appalachian State University with Dr. David Neiman. So we just got our feet in all sorts of things. but my favorite things, the podcast. So uh, come join us there.
1: <laughs> Switch for a yeah, good podcast. Yeah, for sure. And we'll put a link right to that in the episode notes. So uh, one click. Uh, Alexander, what about you? What's uh, new in your world? What do you have coming up?
0: Oh, my gosh. Uh, Well, no, the podcast is something that I'm very excited about with Dotsie. And um, I'm also working to change the statute in Congress, uh, in the United States government that mandates animal testing on drugs. So we're working on that with Center for Responsible Science, an organization that I co-founded.
1: Awesome. Well, go get them. Man, a lot uh, lot to keep up with. So I'm going to have to bring you both back for some updates in a little while
0: you bet love it. love it
1: All right. All right. well listen uh, Dotsy Alexander. thank you guys so very much for joining us today and being so open and this has been a really interesting conversation I thought going into it that there would be a lot of commonalities between where we were and how different our journeys were but how similar they could be at times as well and I think uh, a lot of listeners hopefully made that, that same conclusion so thank you guys both very much Those two are just the absolute best. Alexandra and Dotsie. So grateful that they were so open. I remember being so struck when I was on their show, the Switch for Good podcast, and that was the first time that I heard them say that they too viewed themselves as a food addict. The first time I thought about that. And so hopefully you have gotten a little bit of insight on the show today as well. And it's kind of a metaphor for life in a way, isn't it? In that we are all very different. But we're also still very much the same in a lot of ways. You have to check out that interview that we did on the Switch for Good podcast, by the way really got a chance to open up about the things that fueled my food addiction, deep-seated things, some experiences that I don't usually speak about publicly. So I am forever in their debt for the opportunity, and I hope that you do give that show a listen. You can find a link to it right now in the episode notes. Also in the episode notes, you can find a link to the Switch for Goods Extraordinary report on dairy. This thing is called Dairy Does a Body Bad. Talk about a deep dive on what the science really shows about milk. Just taking out all of the slick marketing and the commercials and the campaigns and leaving nothing but irrefutable data behind. And that is exactly the kind of thing that you need to reference when you're talking about why you're vegan to other people and you're explaining what the science shows. So this report really helps to paint that full picture. Okay, let's go ahead and spend a little more time on food addiction and diet and mental health. And for that, I wanted to play a portion of a conversation I had recently with Dr. Neil Barnard on our live daily show, The Exam Room Live. Here, he talks about why some people are more prone to becoming addicted to these so-called comfort foods, and why in the long run, they are not so comforting at all. Dr. Barnard, thanks so much for being here. You betcha. I mean, this is just fascinating to me. Uh, why is it that comfort foods are more cake than kale?
3: Well, I think you're putting your finger on really the most important thing. A uh, person's stressed, a person is lonely, a person is angry, or something like that. What do they turn to? It's not strawberries. Um, what it typically it's one of four foods: um, sugar. You're you're hearing about people eating sugar, but they don't normally take a box of domino sugar and pour it into a spoon. What they'll do is they'll often have a sugar fat mixture like a cookie or pie um, or a donut or something like that. And so the sugar lures you in, does have brain effects. Sugar increases opiate release in the brain, uh, but it's all the fat that's cooked into these that that really packs in the calories. Uh, Chocolate, a, a chocolate lover is not satisfied with just sugar. Chocolate has other medication or I should say drugs in it as well. I'm not talking about things that are added. They're just part of the the chocolate as it's processed. Uh, Cheese, for some people, is their drug of choice. And finally, for a lot of guys, it's meat. Uh, But it's not apples or cauliflower or other things. These are the foods that people tend to turn to in times of stress. Uh, And obviously, it's a problem because they're all unhealthy and they all can can lead to health issues. Uh, Some people are especially vulnerable, though. And let's go into the brain, and on the left side, you see one neuron, one brain cell, and it's sending dopamine, those little round black dots, over to the next brain cell. Dopamine is your brain's way of rewarding you. When dopamine is released from one cell, like the cell on the left, over to the cell on the right, it gives you a feeling of happiness, reward. It was really designed by nature, if I can put it that way, to uh, reward you for uh, sustaining your life, finding a good, helpful food source, or uh, finding a receptive mate. I didn't design the system, that's just the way it works. Um, so the, you get a little squirt of dopamine that says, let's do that again and again and again and again. And the problem is that certain things will hijack dopamine uh, alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, heroin, and overeating will do it. Here's the issue. Um, If you look carefully on the right side of the screen, you see uh, a cell that has a whole lot of receptors. Think of dopamine as those little black boats that go from the cell on the left to the cell on the right. If you have a lot of receptors, you get a lot of dopamine activity. You feel good. Some people have a gene that causes them to have fewer dopamine receptors. Their, Their brain cells look like that. Uh, The gene is called the DRD2-TAC1 allele. This will not be on the test, but you have fewer dopamine receptors. This is normal. This is what happens if you happen to have that gene. And because dopamine doesn't last very long, if it doesn't find a receptor, it dies. And so people who have this gene and they don't have very many dopamine receptors, they just don't feel so hot. And unfortunately, they are set up for doing anything that gives them more dopamine, like drug addiction, alcoholism, um, compulsive gambling, or overeating. And we, in 2009, published a study where we found that about half of people who were obese with type 2 diabetes had this very uh, genetic trait, meaning they were born with inadequate dopamine activity presumably they were overeating to get dopamine. That caused weight gain that then caused their diabetes to come out. So there you you have it. Now, apart from genetic vulnerability, um, there are certain times of vulnerability. And you might've heard this HALT system. It's been used a lot in drug abuse circles. If you're hungry, you're gonna be set up for wanting all kinds of junk food. Um, And so the thing to do if you're hungry is to eat something healthy, take the edge off your hunger, Cravings will be reduced. If you're angry, if you're lonely, if you're tired, uh, these are things that you want to deal with. Um, If you're tired, take a nap. Go to sleep if you can. Um, If you're lonely, reach out to somebody. Otherwise, what we often reach out to is donuts and bacon. Um, Also, uh, we're vulnerable right now. Uh, Winter is coming, and it's not just humans who know about this. Squirrels are out finding nuts and burying them and putting them in their cheeks. They're gaining weight, and so are you. Uh, 20 years ago, the New England Journal of Medicine published this graph. They looked at holiday time uh, between October and January. That's when we gain almost all the weight of the year. Why? The days are getting darker. The days are getting shorter. We're feeling more stressed. And then the holidays bring the food into us. We gain a lot of weight. Uh, December 31st at midnight, we get disgusted with ourselves. We make a resolution to lose weight. And we do lose a little weight for a while. But um, this is the time of maximal vulnerability in the year. Um, What can you do about it? Uh, A number of years ago, we did a study with GEICO in 10 different cities, 10 different GEICO plants, um, with the idea of using a plant-based diet to help with reducing weight or tackling diabetes. But along the line, we started to look at, could the diet affect how we feel? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes our participants uh, in this study, if they were following a normal diet, they didn't get any benefit. If they were following a low-fat vegan diet, depression dropped. And not only that, anxiety dropped as well. So when you're feeling stressed out, foods can sort of help you. Now, I got one one last thing, Chuck, that I want to share with you. Um, And that is, there's a brain chemical called serotonin. It's sort of a double-edged sword. Um, It can help you to feel better, but it can also make you feel groggy and sleepy and crummy. And uh, I have I'm going to put on my chef hat now for the moment and share with you my one minute cooking tip. And I'll tell you why in a minute. The tip is to make some tofu for breakfast. Now, you take some tofu. You could take tempeh, slice it up and just throw it in your nonstick pan. Grill it on both sides and put it on a plate. Top it with a little bit of ginger and nutritional yeast, a little soy sauce, and have that instead of your morning eggs or morning bacon. It also works with tempeh, as I mentioned. And what you discover is that for the rest of the day, you feel more in balance. How can that be? It's because if you start your day with plant protein, plant protein blocks serotonin production. So uh, this is, I first learned of this from MIT's Richard Workman who is an amazing brain scientist, who who found paradoxically that if you start your day with uh, extra protein, particularly protein from plants, you get all the benefit of it, and it seems to stabilize your mood. It blocks the overproduction of serotonin. And then at night, when you want to go to sleep and you want to feel groggy and whatever, then you can have extra carbohydrate, like pasta or bread. So plant protein Mm -hmm. in the morning, extra carbohydrate at night, And that way you get the serotonin when you want it and not in the morning when it's going to interfere with how you feel. So there you have it, Chuck. Back to you.
1: Let's talk about this a little bit. Um, I want to go back to uh, how we feel after we kind of stress eat. And um, because yesterday there was a big write up, probably on a lot of websites, Uh, one of our producers found this and it was a list of all of the fast food restaurants who were giving away freebies specifically marketed towards stress eaters. I mean, we're talking about free burgers, uh, free donuts, free cinnamon rolls, free apple fritters. I mean, everything unhealthy under the sun. So, really, just to kind of Put the nail in the coffin here, if you eat these supposedly stress relieving foods, it's really in the long run not going to do much to help your mood out at
3: all exactly um, unfortunately, all of the stress relievers have that effect. Um, I'm under stress, so let's say you have a, a drink or two drinks or three drinks you'll relieve stress temporarily and then it comes back uh, more strongly um all the drugs of abuse the whole reason that cocaine or marijuana or, or heroin became drugs of abuse. It's one reason they, they release dopamine in the brain. And that does temporarily release uh, the stress, but it comes roaring back the next day and tends to get worse.
1: We talk about all these foods and you eat them. And what does that tend to lead to? It leads to obesity. I'm curious if there has been any research on whether depression is a little bit more prevalent in people who are struggling with their weight.
3: Uh, it's a lot more prevalent. Um, and it's, the question has been what's the cause and what's the, the effect, uh, because you would think if you're a stress eating, because you're depressed, you're likely to gain weight. Maybe sometimes when people are simply depressed, depressed, they eat less, uh, they sleep less, uh, less commonly when people are depressed, they eat more, but the directionality goes the other way too. When people, um, uh, uh, are, are depressed for whatever reason, obesity does tend to, to, to follow, and obesity per se will lead to depression. It increases the risk probably about fifty percent, something like that.
1: Mm, so it's important that you get out of that that trap, um, and all the tips that we've given over these months and years here at the, doing this show. You know, going yes. on that plant based diet to to really yeah. help turn your health around. This certainly falls right into that category.
3: And one other piece of this, um, sometimes antidepressants themselves can contribute to weight problems and they do have a role in medicine, but it's a really good thing to, not, to make sure that your lifestyle has an antidepressant effect. That's two things. Low-fat vegan diet does seem to help depression. Secondly, add exercise, lace up your sneakers, whether you exercise with a group, which has kind of an antidepressant effect, or even if you're exercising by yourself, The more aerobic exercise you do, that has an antidepressant effect too. Plus, when you're out jogging, it's hard to carry a bowl of ice cream with you. Um, So it works well in that way too.
1: We would love for you to join us for the exam room live Monday through Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Join us. Get your questions answered. Interact with other exam roomies. Raise your nutrition IQ and become part of the healthiest half hour anywhere online today. We love getting a chance to hang out with you all. So if you want to do that, you want to tune in, you can find links to the Physicians Committee's Facebook page as well as to their YouTube channel in the episode notes. Before we go, before we wrap things up today, I just wanted to say personally that I hope you are doing well. I hope that you're hanging in there, and I hope that you're taking time to breathe during one of the most stressful climates of our lifetime. And while it seems like there is nothing but uncontrolled chaos in the world, remember that right now, You can control your health. You can take steps to get healthy physically and get healthy mentally. And just remind yourself that, hey, I got this. I've got this thing called life. And it's so important that you do. It's super important that you take care of yourself. Why? Because there is still work to be done and we need to work together to do it because we need your help to make the world a healthier place. And to that end, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Also leave a five-star rating and a nice review. And I ask this of you because each new subscription helps us work toward that goal of making the world a healthier place. It keeps us as one of the top-ranked, most downloaded nutrition podcasts out there. But that's not about beating our chest and feeling important in that regard. But it is important because it means that the people who truly need to hear this message and all of this information, potentially life-saving information, and no longer have the proverbial wool pulled over their eyes. They can learn so much. It means that those people are hearing this, they are getting the message, and they are learning and inspiring others then to join in the work as well as they take charge of their health. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to thank Alexandra Paul and Dotsie Bausch from Switch for Good one more time for coming on, and to Dr. Neil Barnard as well for his wisdom. And on behalf of everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based.